Hey there, welcome back to the Men's Sex and Pleasure podcast. I'm your host, Cam Fraser. This is episode number 29. And we're talking all things masculinity, sexuality, male bodies, and men's experiences of pleasure. Today, I have the pleasure of chatting with Stevon Lewis. Stevon is a licensed marriage and family therapist, speaker, and corporate consultant. In his private practice, he specializes in working with adults struggling with imposter syndrome. He's been a featured expert for various major television and media platforms, including the Oprah Winfrey Network, Bustle Magazine, Thrive Global, and Entrepreneur Magazine. As a corporate consultant, he has facilitated discussions about race in the workplace for the Pancreatic Cancer Action Network and Corey Birch. In addition, he has hosted a series of workshops for A New Direction, a London-based nonprofit that provides support and development to individuals that are underrepresented in creative and digital industries. Stevon and I discuss imposter syndrome uh, as it relates to masculinity and quote-unquote being a man, as well as connecting it to performance anxiety in a sexual sense and also transitioning into fatherhood. It's a really fascinating conversation, uh, kind of taking a different uh, approach or a different angle to some topics such as masculinity and uh, performance anxiety, for example. Stevon has a really interesting uh, perspective on, on these areas. So it was a fascinating conversation for me, and I hope you also find it fascinating. We know that once a person is perverted, it is practically impossible for that person to adjust to normal attitudes in regard to sex. Sometimes you hear that masturbation affects your mind or your manhood. It isn't true. And some people call the penis funny names like John Willie or something. But we call it its real name, penis. All right, my brother. Well, like I said, we'll jump straight in and I'll just invite you to yeah, answer that first question that I ask everyone, which is... Um, Welcome to the show, and, and if you want to share a little bit of your, your story, mate, as it relates to, to masculinity and sexuality and maybe the work that you're doing now, man, the, the floor's yours. For sure, for sure. I'm Steve on Lewis, licensed marriage and family therapist uh, out of uh, Inglewood, California, LA. Uh, like I said, about 10 minutes or so east of LAX, so if anybody's familiar with that area. Uh, so I've been doing therapy for a while now. I, I kind of specialize in working with people with imposter syndrome. And I think that's how, you know, you found me, Cam, of kind of wanting to have that discussion of imposter syndrome kind of on a broader context as it relates to uh, more of just masculinity or being a man and kind of, you know, how we navigate the world and not always feeling as confident as maybe, you know, society suggests we should. Uh, so for me, uh, I'm, I'm pretty tall. I know you guys do meters. I'm about like 1.92 meters, I guess would be. Uh, so fair, fairly tall. Uh, I don't know kilos on how much I weigh. Uh, but in pounds, about two, two forty-five or so. Uh, and so, you know, I think kind of I've always been a big guy. Um, so kind of walking up or, or growing up in the, in the world here in, uh, in America, um, just being big and kind of, you know, as a kid. And I think, you know, we don't kind of discuss race and we miss an aspect of that, that like in America, race is a, a huge thing. Uh, so being a, a big black male is, is a, you know, a thing in, in life in general. And so, you know, I guess for me, as we talk about masculinity, like I think I've always kind of, you know, because of my size have been gifted, you know, I guess that idea of, of, of being strong and, 
and, and being a man's man, whatever that means. Um, but also kind of in my history, like, you know, I've grown up in a household where uh, my dad passed when we was 17, when I was 17. And so, you know, having a mom and two older sisters, I've, you know, been heavily influenced for sure by, you know, pretty strong in, uh, women and, and black women at, at that in my life. Uh, so kind of, I guess, uh, you know, navigating that process of having a, a level of emotional intelligence that's maybe a bit higher <laughs> than most of my peers at the time, uh, you know, separates me, I think, from a bit. And I, that started off kind of, like I said, at a, at a you know, much younger age than, than most people. So it's like getting to university or, you know, kind of navigating that space, already having the wherewithal of how to understand emotions and, you know, communicate at a level that maybe, you know, most guys or fellows that at that time or at that age, young adult, don't have that ability. Um, and I think, you know, in terms of sexuality, like I've, you know, cisgender, you know, heterosexual male, so uh, never kind of had to grapple, I guess, with sexuality in that way. I think maybe more so the way it impacted me might have been uh, about the societal norms about, you know, men, you know, kind of always chasing after women or something like that, that maybe I didn't kind of really subscribe to. Mm. Uh, there's a, um, there's a pretty strong, um, stereotype around like big guys, which is that they're good at sport. You know, my brother, my brother was, um, he's, uh, I'll use, I'll use feet. Uh, he's six foot six and he's, um, and he's yeah he, he, he used to be quite um quite stocky he's lost quite a bit of weight now but the um the assumption was always oh you're going to be great at basketball you're going to be great at rugby you're going to be great at all these sports and um and you know he, he was he was a good sportsman but before people even got to know him there was just this kind of stereotype that he was just like this big guy so let's let, let's get him on the on the sporting team and and um, and he felt, you know, he, he won't mind me sharing this, but he felt a lot of pressure to perform and um, in that sporting sense. And I was wondering, you know, being a big guy yourself, did you notice there was that kind of pressure on you to, to be good at sport or to even just be sporty in general? Oh, for sure. I mean, it still happens today where, uh, you know, like at a young age, uh, people wanted me to play football because I'm, you know, not only tall, but have, you know, good size. Uh, mom did not, you know, feel that. So we're talking American football, not soccer. Uh, <laughs> so, so mom was not into that. Uh, so I did play basketball a lot, like, you know, kind of, uh, I guess like the ages of like 12 to, to 18, 19, uh, played a lot of basketball, uh, played high school uh, basketball, varsity, whatnot. Um, but yeah, like even afterwards, like I've always been academically kind of inclined, like, you know, academics have always come easy to me. And so I think I've done really well or, success, uh, you know, kind of excelled in, in, my academics at, and it didn't cost me a lot. And so, you know, I was one of the few guys that, you know, played sports, but also did really well in the classroom. Um, and so then like, you know, getting into college, people think you play ball or, you know, even after, like as an adult now, when I'm walking around somewhere, someone sees me, oh, you know, where did, where did you used to play? And it's like, yeah, I never, I didn't do that. Like I went to school, <laughs> you know, I, I studied, I'm a therapist. Like I, <laughs> there aren't many therapists that look like me per se, size wise or whatnot in the field. So, yeah, like I didn't do any of that stuff, but it's still kind of described to me now. Or even, you know, people will talk a lot about sports and like, you know, I'm not the guy like, sure, I watched, you know, the Lakers win the championship. And but I'm not like a huge sports fan in that way. I'm not sitting down all Saturday watching, watching like, you know, American football or watching basketball and, and stuff like that. Like I used to do that, but that's no longer me. I mean, I'm more apt to kind of get out on my bicycle and go ride for a while. And so, you know, I guess kind of having that that perception or assumption about me because I am, you know, kind of got like a, you know, athletic build that people are expecting me to, you know, kind of 
navigate that space until yeah, you know, I, I like ancient Greek philosophy. Like that's not <laughs> I am a different, different, different breed for sure. Yeah, yeah. There's um and so it's interesting that you are now specializing in imposter syndrome. And I'm wondering, did you experience any of that imposter syndrome then yourself, kind of being more academically inclined, but having a you know the physique of like a, a an athlete or a bigger guy who maybe people are assume are navigating that space? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think that like, you know, part of it was it was it seemed like it was it was a cool thing to not do well in school. Like that was the thing. And so, you know, trying to navigate like how how am I going to fit in? Because, you know, I'm getting good grades, but like so I wouldn't talk about them. So I wouldn't share that I was getting good grades. And, you know, people would be like, oh, you know, I failed that test. And it's like, oh, yeah, but that test was difficult even though I got like an A on it, right? And so that was my thing is like, I wouldn't talk about kind of my academic success. You would have to figure it out or find out uh, from, from people. And so I didn't like kind of lead with that. Whereas, you know, I guess that was kind of my way to try to fit in because of just the community I was in. That wasn't something that was, you know, promoted or was, you know, celebrated, I guess, in the sense of, you know, being academically kind of inclined or, or wanting to be successful in that way. Yeah, I resonate with that heaps, man. My um. Like I went to, uh, I was sharing before, I went to university or into college over in America, but I was over there on a, on a sporting scholarship. I was playing, I was playing the real football, soccer. Um, and uh, and um, I was, uh, and so I was, I was on a scholarship. I was playing for the team. You know, I played the four years there. And um, and like, it, like the soccer space wasn't, the athletic space wasn't really my jam, but I was, you know, I was part of the locker room culture. I was part of the team, but my, like where my, I guess, you know, uh, niche was, I, I guess, you know, my, the, the social group that I fit into was like the partiers was, you know, I was, I was, I had long hair at the time. I was, you know, I was from Australia. I, I was living up to that stereotype of being a big drinker and just being a, you know, being pretty loose and being, being a larrikin, I suppose. And, um, and so, but I was always quite academically inclined as well. I really liked studying, you know, I liked studying psychology. I liked studying philosophy as well. Um, I was really interested in kind of that behavioral sciences type side of things. So I did quite well because I was really interested in what I was, you know, studying. I did quite well in the in the classroom, but people didn't know that and assumed that I wasn't doing well because I was just drinking and partying most of the time. Um, and uh, I remember a um, uh, an interaction I had with one of the the um, young women on the the uh, female soccer team, and they they found out that my friend and I ended up getting the two highest scores in, in a random test. And they were shocked. They were like, oh, how did you, you know, they, they just couldn't comprehend. They couldn't reconcile those two identities of being like a, a partier, but also being kind of, you know, quite academic. Um, and so I always, yeah, I always felt a little bit of that like imposter syndrome when I was out drinking because I was like, oh, I'm also, you know, I also want to talk about philosophy and psychology and have these kind of more in-depth conversations with these guys who were just kind of talking about sport. But then also when I was hanging out with the academics, I was like, Fuck, I just want to get loose and, and party here. You know, what's the, and so there was always like this, like, well, where do I, where do I fit in? I think that's my, if I reflect on my own um, development, my own growing up was the kind of one of the first instances of me recognizing that imposter syndrome in myself, um, which, which happened you know, quite young. I would have been in my, my, my mid to late teens there. And uh, I'm wondering with your work um, and, and talking about imposter syndrome, is that, do you, do you reckon that's like one of the roots of imposter syndrome is like where we where we fit in with our friend groups and our identities and our social kind of dynamics? Sure. So I think it comes from a few different places, uh, just kind of, I guess, anecdotally from the clients that I work with. 
some of it comes from early childhood. So like, you know, our relationships with our parents and if we have parents who were super critical of us or, you know, didn't really kind of provide a lot of praise or, uh, you know, celebrate our successes or things that we were you know, doing well, and they just kind of pointed out where we were you know, missing the mark, so to speak. Uh, you know, it might sound like, you know, sit up straight, you know, make sure you chew your food, you know, hold your fork like this. Uh, those little things start to add up, right? And so it starts to feel like, well, I'm only getting told or talked to when I'm doing something wrong. And so it seems like I'm not really doing anything right because that's not, it's not really balanced, right? Um, and so like, you know, kind of seeing that and then seeing where, you know, maybe parents, uh, someone had parents who were, uh, I guess, in a place of where you had to do something almost amazing to get a level of praise. Uh, which suggests then that like, you know, you're below average, even if you've got like a 3.8, you aren't valedictorian. And so, you know, you're supposed to do well in school is the the adage. And so people then feel like they aren't really doing enough. Um, and then, you know, kind of start to extrapolate that out to like later periods in life where if you show up as like the only person in a room, you know, whether that's like racially or, you know, based on your gender or sexual orientation, uh, you start to feel like, well, you know, how am I in this space? because uh, no one else around here looks like me, so I'm not quite sure that I belong in this room. Uh, and so that, that starts to kind of weigh on us. Uh, I think about maybe like, you know, women in tech or something like that, right? And so the room is dominated by a ton of people that aren't me. And so I kind of question, like, do I belong in this, in this room? Or like we come from, you know, families or around people, and I think this is where the friend group stuff comes in, uh, people who aren't kind of at the level that we are, or like, have a different history from us. And so we're like, well, they have both parents in the home or they come from a family that's more affluent or, you know, they've got parents that went to college, uh, all these sorts of things. And then we kind of say, well, I don't know that that's my story per se. And so I start to question whether or not, you know, I, I belong kind of in these different spaces or groups, right? And so I think like what you're alluding to is kind of, you know, that stuff, uh, the things that really impact imposter syndrome come from you know, variety of places, but it is really about our associations and how we see ourselves belonging or connecting with those people around us. Yeah, interesting, man. I, I definitely felt that um, strong imposter syndrome when I was um, a male or just a man, cisgender heterosexual guy in the in the psychology space and in the um, and even even more so in the sexology and sexual therapy space, which is um, yeah, predominantly women. In fact, I was the only cishet guy in my, um, I believe it was my cohort at university um, studying sexology. And um, yeah, and, and my first experience, I suppose you could say of, you know, in a social setting being a minority, you know, it was, it was a very, um, very uh, confronting, but also enlightening experience in those class settings. Um, and yeah, it was, it was, um, yeah, it was very, very, yeah, just very interesting to be able to, to kind of navigate that space, I suppose. And I'm very, I felt very lucky to be able to kind of be in one of those spaces because I know a lot of people don't have the opportunity to kind of experience that in a really safe, you know, in a safe way. I think a lot of people experience imposter syndrome, um, kind of out of the blue without really recognizing that it's there. And then all of a sudden it's, again, this is just my projection, I suppose here. And then all of a sudden they're kind of having to deal with it and they don't really know how to deal with imposter syndrome or how to deal with kind of being feeling out of place or not fitting in. Um, and when that kind of happens, when people, I suppose, aren't able to deal with it or it kind of catches them off guard, what are some of the things that, that can pop up? Like, how do we know we maybe are experiencing imposter syndrome? What are some of the manifestations of it? For sure. Yeah. So for me, I think that like, 
I, I kind of distinguish between, you know, just kind of self-confidence or self-doubt, uh, because I think those things disappear once we start to accomplish things. Um, you know, it might creep in at the beginning of something, but like after a while, we kind of say, okay, we've got, I've got some mastery over this. I know what I'm doing. You know, I might have a little bit of jitters before I get on, you know, podcast with Cam, but, you know, after, after I get to talking, I'm like, okay, I've done podcasts before. I'm all right. Uh, I think people with imposter syndrome kind of hold on to that and it's more enduring, right? And so that even though they're accomplishing things and they're getting results that suggest that they know what they're doing, that questioning or that self-doubt or that lack of self-confidence does not dissipate. It does not disappear. Um, it continues at the same level of intensity where they're operating in a place of fear of being found out to be a fraud, even though evidence or what they're getting in kind of reality is darkly different from, from you know, having that feeling. Like it doesn't make sense. It doesn't add up uh, that you would feel this way considering what you're accomplishing, what you're putting out. Mm, interesting, man. Is that then um related to performance anxiety like i'm I'm thinking here of um musicians for example or, or artists or people that are um performing in front of people uh is there a, a relationship then between like the imposter syndrome that they might be experiencing and performance anxiety or are those two separate experiences right and so i think like it could be like in terms of, of the performance right but i think it's more about like not so much appearing in front of people, it's more, you know, which is kind of situational. It's more of saying like, I don't really have what these people think I have. So it's, it's outside of like, hey, do I know how to, uh, you know, play the guitar? It's like my music really isn't as good as these people think it is, right? Or that if I do play the guitar, I'm doing it incorrectly. So it's now diminished or lessened. So it's not as good, not, a, you know, not as good of an accomplishment or not as substantial or influential. And so, you know, I, I use a ton of analogies when I do therapy. And it's like, you know, I mean, if we're talking music, uh, Jimi Hendrix kind of did things in a, you know, unorthodox way. You know, he played the guitar left-handed and, you know, wasn't really kind of uh, classically taught how to do that. And, you know, just all sorts of stuff. But his music is, you know, it's timeless. It still lives on, right? Like nobody says, oh, this sounds terrible. His rendition of like the American Star Spangled Banner was like, you know, boom, like amazing, right? And so I think that like, you know, what, what people with imposter syndrome do, it's not just so much that like, it's performing the task because what they find or what they do is they live in this space of being found out to be a fraud. So they go above and beyond to try to mask or hide the fact that they don't have the skill sets, which makes this, it makes them more successful, right? And so that they are doing an even better job than we would have thought. Uh, but for them, it's like that anxiety behind that, that push that I have to do all of this stuff and I'm barely hiding the fact that I don't have this ability or skill. And I think that's what the difference is. Interesting, man. So it's like more generalized than it is situational. I think that's the, mm -hmm. the word used before. And um, and then there's, I guess then there, there's like this um, concept of like using it, uh, using this imposter syndrome that you might be experiencing uh, in a beneficial way, right? In a, in a, in a healthy way to help you um, produce uh, or perform at a higher level, right? So you can kind of harness it, I suppose, similar to harnessing performance anxiety or some other type of anxiety, right? You can, you can kind of utilize it in a way to um, healthily make sure that you're kind of performing at an even, even better level, right? Is that kind of fair to say? Uh, I think that's like the idea, right? Like I think we want to take things that aren't really uh, what we call kind of, you know, positive behaviors or what we'll call kind of maladaptive behaviors. And we want to kind of funnel them into uh, areas where it's, it's healthier. Um, and so, you know, I think part of what people try to do with imposter syndrome is try to say that, 
well, you know, me questioning myself, you know, pushes me to not be complacent, right? It makes me go the extra step and be more diligent. And I'm saying that might be a byproduct of it, right? So that's, you know, a latent kind of, uh, you know, byproduct that we get as a result of it. But there's also the part of what does that do to you psychologically? Living in this place constantly where you feel like you don't have what it takes to really be in spaces or do the job that you're doing or be in the relationship that you're in. Um, what is that doing to you? What, is, what message are you really sending your brain? And I'm saying that, like, I think while you are trying to channel that into something healthy, I think the long-term damage is, is worse and you can't out kind of work that, that like what's happening in terms of, you know, you feeling like a fraud and what your inner bully is telling you about yourself is really kind of deteriorating and it's chipping away at your kind of, you know, perception of self, who you are. Mm, yeah, yeah, totally, man. And I, I see that um, specifically like in my work with um, like societal messages around masculinity, I suppose, and like kind of what it means to quote unquote be a man. And that's, you know, to kind of to think back to what you shared with regards to where imposter syndrome kind of comes from. I see that from, you know, um, from all angles, I suppose, everything that you kind of shared, I could kind of relate to this idea of like masculinity, for example, because our parents kind of drill it into us, you know, boys don't cry, you know, man up, you know, all that sort of stuff about like, you know, um, even like uh, relationships as well. It's like, oh, um, if a boy, um, if a little boy kind of punches a girl or, you know, does something that's kind of like, you know, um, taunts her or teases her or whatever, it's like, oh, it's because he likes you, right? And there's this, all this kind of what you should be doing to fit in as a, as a little boy, as opposed to being a little girl or a little, um, right. whatever little child. Um, and then that's reinforced then by friend groups and stereotypes. And, you know, you shared it before you're supposed to be, um, the, the guy that chases girls and, and, you know, again, it's all very heteronormative as well. So there's like quite a lot of internalized homophobia that pops up. So you've got this, this, um, image i suppose that's um that we kind of curate around masculinity that's kind of drilled into you from all those different areas so um i think a lot of guys are maybe experiencing imposter syndrome when it comes to kind of being a man or being masculine um but i think uh and i'm just kind of like reflecting on this now like it's imposter syndrome yes i would say um but i also feel like it's um like almost in a good way you know what i mean like it's like oh i don't feel like i fit in with that like jock misogynist kind of like you know traditional quote-unquote you know stoic masculinity man which um yeah which could be a good thing right you know right. Is, is is like like I'm, I'm a bit more emotional i'm a bit more sensitive uh you know i'm not i don't treat women like this for example and so like i don't fit in with that crew um so that that imposter syndrome maybe is is probably a good thing right is that kind of a, a conversation to have? Yeah, yeah. And I think that like in, a, in an instance like that, for sure, right? That like, you know, feeling like you don't fit in is, might be more of a reality than imposter syndrome. Like you do not absolutely fit in with that group, right? Like you are more emotionally intelligent. You are more tied into, you know, things that aren't related to the athletics. Uh, so that is not your group, right? That, and, that's, and that's okay. Um, I think, you know, when we talk about masculinity, we've got to, you know, acknowledge the fact that you know, I think in, in society, masculinity is something that's kind of earned uh, and, and, you know, as opposed to kind of given to you and that you can lose it. And so, you know, as you're operating through life and you're thinking about like, you know, your manhood can be robbed or taken away from you, right? Like, I mean, if you aren't, like you, like you said, as you know, if you show emotion or you cry, 
you know, don't be a girl, you know, don't, you know, real men don't, don't cry. Or if you, you know, those sorts of things, right? Like, and it's like, if you don't want to, I don't know, you don't want to play, like you said, basketball or soccer, and instead you want to, I don't know, play double dutch or something like that, right? Like that, you get in trouble for that, right? Like you're, you're frowned upon, you were, you know, now less of a girl, don't be a punk, right? If you don't want to fight someone and you'd much rather kind of talk it out, uh, you know, you can't be a punk, like right? don't be a bitch, like all this stuff that's negative, right? And so it's, I think, I think we're thinking about, you know, masculinity is it's kind of to be on the chopping block for us. So we've got to try to protect this thing. And, and, you know, like, what does that mean in terms of if I've got to risk it, will I ever be able to get it back? Because I don't fit in and describe to these, these sorts of things. And I think that that's, like that could lead to some imposterism of where you're saying, well, I don't know if I'm, you know, man enough per se or whatever. Uh, and it's like, who made the rules around that? Yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I, I reflect on that, like in my own experiences as well of, of like, I've, I've never been like, I'm, I'm tall, but I've never really been like kind of muscly. Um, and you know, I've, I've, you know, I feel kind of you know, confident kind of talking to women, but I've never been like, overtly you know uh i hate the word but successful with women um you know and it's like that um that has made me feel in the past you know kind of inadequate or like i'm like oh you know uh, especially when when people kind of assume as well that like i was um you know would project onto me like hey you know this guy's like you know chatting to chatting to girls and he's you know doing all this you know cool stuff and i'm like oh fuck i'm you know these people kind of think i'm more of a quote-unquote man than maybe i actually really you know feel myself um, yeah and so i think there's like and i think that uh, again sharing that experience with kind of men that i've worked with and, and sharing it in circle i think a lot of guys feel kind of the same way they're like kind of putting on this um i think the the term is machismo right they're, they're kind of like playing up their masculinity more so than maybe what they actually feel um and not really acknowledging that I, you know this this concept of like kind of wearing a mask wearing that that man mask or that masculine mask um that's without... interesting like you use that phrase because there's a documentary called the mask you live in and it talks about that it's about masculinity and how you know boys are socialized to that and it comes from not just other guys or men in their life or other boys but like women you know play a role in socializing that too where you know, maybe mom says, you know, don't cry, or, you know, you got to be a big man, or, you know, uh, girls aren't attracted to the guy that is emotionally intelligent at the younger ages, right? Like, it's the guy who, you know, pushing other dudes around, wrestling a lot, you know, or, or doing those things. And so it's like also about that attraction. So I think, I think it's interesting, like, you use that term because it is a mask. It's like, you know, we're putting on this veil, this uh, kind of performance that we're trying to do. And like, it's not a monolith. Like, we aren't all the same level of, uh, masculine or present in terms, but I don't know that that reduces our, you know, whether we're man, man or not. So, mm, yeah. And it's, and it's like analogous to that musician example, the Jimi Hendrix example for, you know, we were talking about before is like, um, going above and beyond to show how good you are at music, right. At playing the guitar. And I think a lot of men are going above and beyond to show you how masculine they are, right. Hyper performing in that sense as well um and, so and now i've I, got like multiple women i'm dealing with or have dealt with or you know i make sure my body is all chiseled or you know just whatever it is you know and it's just kind of yeah almost unnecessary but i it's trying to live up to the standard and not feeling and trying to i guess cover 
uh, like you said, cover, uh, cover up the fact that maybe I don't feel inside of what people say I should be doing. Mm, totally. And I, I see that reflected then in um, like the way, particularly I work with, you know, cishet men. So I'll, I'll use this kind of realm um, of example, but I see the way that these men then interact with their sexual partners, you know, and there's this, there's this narrative around masculinity and sexuality together, which is, you know, the, you know, the man is supposed to be quite dominant and is supposed to be assertive and is supposed to kind of take charge in the bedroom and be knowledgeable, you know, know what he's doing, um, you know, take control of all the pleasure as well. You know, it's, you know, he's the active participant, she's the passive participant, right? There's all these kind of like uh, sexist, sexist stereotypes around, you know, male, female um, sexual interaction. Um, and I see a lot of guys, um, feel pressure to to perform in those scenarios right and and this is one of the components of performance anxiety um in a you know um sexual sense but i'm also thinking that there's a bit of a relationship there between what we've just talking about with regards to kind of that imposter syndrome around masculinity and that then manifesting as um you know that situational uh performance anxiety and there being a, a relationship between that kind of generalized imposterism as well. Do you reckon there's a, a relationship there? For sure. Cause like, I mean, even today, like in 2020, you see, you know, that stereotypical kind of where in, in film or TV, uh, you know, men is a horned off. He's always wanting sex, looking for that. And so if that's the, you know, kind of litmus test and you don't feel like you're there that like, Hey, you know, maybe I'm stressed. And so my, you know, libido isn't what it normally would be, or that I'm thinking about other things. And so I'm not, you know, thinking about having sex. And like, if you're not at that place, then, you know, something must be wrong with you. And I think that, you know, we pathologize that kind of behavior of like, hey, if you aren't kind of always wanting to kind of jump on, you know, your partner, then what, what's your problem? Uh, and I think, like you said, is, you know, it leads to more of that kind of performance of like, hey, like, I don't nearly have it, but I can't have a day off. Uh, I guess, you know, I use, like I said, I use a lot of analogies. So it's like kind of being, you know, in sports, I use a lot of sports stuff too, which is, I guess, you know, plays into the idea of <laughs> masculinity, right? But uh, so I think sports are just like a really, you know, universal kind of understood thing. Uh, so it's like, you know, best player on the team, but you can't have an off game, right? Because, you know, now all of a sudden your abilities as best player, you suck, you're terrible, you're horrible uh, if you don't do X. Uh, and I think, you know, if we kind of take that out of context and say the same thing about men in spaces, well, if you don't do these, then you aren't, you know, hitting the mark of being, quote unquote, male. And if, if we know that to be true of us on the inside, then how can we really connect to this identity externally that people are saying we, we should, you know, adopt? Yeah, yeah. And there's, um, and there's, a, there's a lot of anxiety when, which comes with that. And, you know, the the cruel irony of like performance anxiety in the you know in a sexual sense is that the more you try and perform um the more anxious you get and so the less you end up performing right and it's um so it's it's not uh, again it's like not analogous to that like uh, i can i can use this to kind of hyper perform here i can use this to kind of be um, a go above and beyond. It's, it definitely doesn't work like that when it comes to you know being sexual. The more you try and do that, the the less you actually are able to to enjoy and 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 be in the moment and be sexual with your partner. So I think a lot of guys are are, are attempting to kind of go above and beyond when it comes to like sexual performance. Let's say, um, 
but by virtue of doing that they end up you know shooting themselves in the foot and and having a more um detrimental experience so um instead of maybe going above and beyond and trying to really hyper perform to compensate for that kind of feeling of of kind of being an imposter what are some healthier ways in general and then maybe we can spitball with regards to you know sexual ways that that men might be able to to overcome or at least utilize that performance anxiety uh just in general you're saying yeah yeah in general yeah maybe imposter syndrome sorry rather than performance anxiety what what are some ways we can start to work with that yeah so like i'm really big about people kind of uh normalizing or or you know taking in data right to, to confirm what their beliefs are uh so when we talk about imposter syndrome we're talking about someone who has this enduring belief that they don't have the abilities that most of the world sees and thinks that they possess uh, so, you know, for that, I'm trying to line up your thinking or yourself, you know, your perception of self with what the rest of the world is seeing. So, you know, having people engage in activities where, uh, you know, they are doing an assessment, so to speak, of taking evidence from the world about things they've done. Um, so what I do kind of when I'm working with someone is uh, have them create like an evidence sheet uh, where they kind of write down objective information, real factual information about things that they've accomplished and done. Uh, and then, you know, you can't really run from that. It's like, you know, you scored 40 points. You know, I mean, you can say, well, the team helped me. You know, they got me the ball where I needed to. Scored 40 points. Like, I mean, you know, you can, you can try to explain it the way you want. That happened, right? Like, so you can't really run from that. Uh, so having them kind of engage in some of those things. So just like through their daily life, things that are happening that are in line with what they've accomplished. And it's saying like, hey, you did that unless you're telling me someone else did that, right? You can try to explain it away, but that happened to you. Um, and then kind of, you know, collecting data from other people, right? I have a, an activity I call collecting data where, you know, I have you ask a few different people kind of what your strengths are, uh, like your top four or five strengths. And then, you know, you I can put it into a table and so that people can see like, hey, this is what you put out into the world. Are you saying they're lying that this isn't who you are? And there, you know, oftentimes I'll get like, well, I'm trying, I try to be that. And it's like, well, it sounds like not only are you trying, you're accomplishing it because other people are seeing it, uh, you know, and it's like, uh, I think kind of breaking down some of those beliefs that we tell ourselves or some of the excuses or reasons why people with imposter syndrome try to explain away that good things happen to them or people said nice stuff about them, uh, you know, just all the reasons and say like, well, no, let's just objectively look at it. This happened. You got an A. I don't know if the class was easy. Uh, if it was so easy, then did everybody get an A? They didn't. People failed. It couldn't have been that easy then. Mm, interesting man yeah i am um, i'm reflecting on like how that translates into like a um, relationship or a sexual context and one of the things that pops up to me is like is is doubt right and you said the explaining away of any type of accomplishment right and and so i've worked with guys that um you know they they consider themselves quite poor lovers for example and and maybe they don't last as long as they would like or or they just aren't you know they're, they're not very knowledgeable in terms of like their partner's anatomy and things like this um and so historically they've had you know um pretty negative sexual experiences right that's and that's kind of their belief is that they're a bad lover and that they don't know how to um, perform sexually uh, to use the the performance word um and so then when we start to do some work together and they start to um, maybe have better sexual experiences with their partner or um, you know, with if they're just casually dating is one of the things that keeps on popping up for them is like, oh, they were just faking it or, oh, they, they're just trying to save my ego or, or they're just trying to, you know, and they so, so start explaining it away. 
Um, and so I like the idea of, of um, and it, it comes down to, 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 I guess, like communication in that regard. It would have to be, you know, um, you know, sit down, debrief with your, your sexual partner afterwards and be like, okay, did you enjoy that? You know, let's have an open, honest conversation, uh, kind of similar to that asking of your friends or your social circle for your strengths. Like you've got to trust those people, right? That's, that's the, otherwise, you know, then that explaining away of, oh, they're probably just lying becomes a legitimate kind of excuse, right? If you actually don't trust those people or they're not trustworthy people. Um, so you've got to have that kind of open, strong relationship with the, the people that you're asking. No, that's really good because I mean that I could see where that would happen of like, you know, if I've got this perception of myself, I've got this belief about who I am, this core belief of I'm not good at X, I am not good in bed, I am not good as a, you know, in relationships, then if it's working, it can't be because of me or that they didn't want to hurt my feelings and tell me that, you know, I'm not really that good. And, and you know, it's like getting people to uh, kind of, I guess, challenge that that way of thinking i mean i the way i kind of do it is personalize it and say like you know it's the inner bully right so kind of personified i guess in a sense and say you know it's the inner bully the inner bully is you know that that critic that negative voice on the inside of us that you know just like a real bully but wants to you know beat us up and make us feel terrible and it presents stuff in a way that feels it makes us feel like it's true but the evidence isn't really there to support and so if you're telling me that when someone says yes, you did well at X, you're saying that that only happened because they like you or they didn't want to hurt your feelings, but not because you really had it. And so then when you start to question like, well, is that person a liar? You know, is that person someone who tells you lies often or doesn't you know, want to hurt your feelings? Or, you know, has this person ever hurt your feelings before? Oh, well, yeah, they have. Or, uh, you know, so it started getting them to question. So why would they want to do this in this moment? You know, because it, it doesn't seem like that's the nature of you guys' relationship, that it's, it's fake and, and not authentic. Totally, man. And I, I definitely see that with regards to, um, and this is not just men, but I feel like couples, um, when it comes to like um, their love for one another, you know, and I'll often see this um, reflected in one person of that relationship as opposed to the other where they've got maybe a core belief or just kind of this um, narrative that they've identified with, which is like, they're not lovable. And so it often manifests as like asking their partner, you know, is everything okay? You know, um, you know do, you know, do you love me? And it's, and it's quite, um, I think of attachment styles there. And there's quite an anxious attachment there to this person of like, God, please don't leave me. And it's, and it's a, um, yeah, just manifests in that way of like, just having to constantly check in with this other partner, making sure that they still uh, are in love with them or still love them because they've got that kind of core belief that, you know, to be in a loving relationship is, is, um, you know, they feel like an imposter in that space. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that like, they need this constant reinforcement to say they're okay. Right. Yeah. And then like, you know, the, the narratives that they create in their head to kind of, uh, support that stuff. And so what we do is then they ignore things that uh, counter or challenge that, that core belief of themselves and let, let in all that stuff. So that confirmation bias, right, of allowing only in the stuff that supports this narrative that I've created about myself. So if I make a mistake and my partner gets upset with me, see, I told you I don't know what I'm doing. They hate me. They'd be better off without me. Uh, they're going to leave me soon. As opposed to like, hey, that was, you know, 30 minutes out of one day out of, you know, this entire month. That wasn't good. So you mean all the other times, like they just didn't speak up on it, but you were just 
constantly fucking up. Like, I, I don't buy that. Like, I think you were probably doing a really good job and that if you were so terrible and you were such a horrible partner, I think you'd be alone by now, right? Like, I don't think people, I mean, some instances for sure, like when we talk about like DV and stuff like that, uh, but even those guys aren't always horrible, right? Like they've got to do some good stuff to be able to get the person to stay. Uh, so it's like, you know, people don't really normally stay at the outset in something that's a shitty experience or situation. I've not seen it happen. I mean, you know, if you were terrible and horrible, that would have been pretty evident early on. And I think people would have gotten out of there. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think that confirmation bias is like a huge part. And, and I love the, the, um, evidence sheet that you were talking about before because i think people whether unknowingly or subconsciously have a tendency to create their own evidence sheet about negative experiences right <laughs> and um i think that's just a human human trait of us like you know we acknowledge or are, um i suppose focus on the negative things in in um in life more than we focus on the positive things. And so I think people are just like collecting evidence for all these negative experiences in their relationship. Let's use that as the, as the ongoing example. And then, um, and then kind of build up this story in the head of like, Oh, look at all this stuff that's happened and look at all these bad things. And, and they've got like this long run sheet of all the crap and they haven't even begin to create an evidence sheet for all the positive stuff that's kind of going on in that relationship. So I love that that's something that you do. Cause I think as a, as a, yeah, just human beings, we just never do that. And it's almost like um, you're reflecting on what you're appreciative for and what you're, what are you grateful for and things like that, which I think is a really powerful practice, like gratitude practices, I think like a really powerful thing to do. Um, yeah, so is, is there, um, do you find a lot of resistance for people to do that, to kind of focus on the positive side of things? Yep, 100%. And I think that's kind of one of the other, I guess, you know, qualities of, of, you know, struggling with imposter syndrome and, and kind of that high level of self-doubt. Uh, is that there isn't enough time spent in, you know, acknowledging the good. Uh, and, and like you said, kind of the gratitude. So that's another kind of intervention I'll use is like people have to engage in gratitude activities or, or do a gratitude journal or, you know, some clients I have them at the beginning of, of every day, you know, say what they're grateful for when they get up. And then at the end of the day, say what they were grateful for, for things that happen, right? And so what I try to get people to understand is that how could you feel good about yourself if you spend the majority of your time and hours thinking about only the negative? Uh, I, that to me just doesn't make sense that you would be able to feel like you were a really good person and you were accomplishing a lot and you were successful and you were, you know, making other people's lives better if I'm all, only focused on the times that I didn't do that part. Uh, and so getting them to say like, it, at a minimum, you've got to create some balance, right? Like if, if you aren't getting it from the rest of the world that you're doing a great job or you're ignoring it when the world says that stuff, then you've got to do a better job of saying like, hey, you spent an hour thinking about all the things you did wrong, then you need to spend an hour thinking about all the things you've done well. Unless you're saying you don't do anything right, which you, I don't live in the world of absolutes. Uh, so I, I'm like, you know, I'm critical when it comes to language like that. Uh, and so I, you know, kind of get on people uh, about that stuff and saying like, hey, you've got to balance that out because what you're doing now is you're living in a place of negativity and you're saying you feel like a piece of shit. And it's like, well, duh, that's what happens, right? And so it's like, you know, you got to start focusing more on the good. And so here are these things that I think you need to start engaging in these activities to kind of retrain your brain to notice more of the good because you're just not good at that anymore. Like you can see bad immediately, good cannot get in. So we've got to create space for that to be able to happen. Yeah, and I can see that pretty um, 
strongly correlating with stuff like depression and and kind of spiraling right if you're like you said if you're in that negative space all the time and that's all you're kind of taking in and all you're focusing on um you can you can fall down that rabbit hole pretty quickly i would assume and, and do you see that with with people that have you know that imposter syndrome just kind of snowballed into some stronger depression oh for sure absolutely and i think that's what people you know brings people into therapy with me is not because they are suffering like they recognize like hey I'm an imposter and, you know, my imposter syndrome is like getting on my nerves. It's like, hey, you know, they come in with symptoms of like depression or anxiety. Right. And so then it's like I start to peel that back. And we start to find out like, OK, here's what's really going on. And so getting them to kind of have that understanding about, you know, what's, what's driving their behavior of, of why they're having this anxiety or why they're having, you know, these depressed states and feeling, feeling unmotivated. And it's like, well, you know, look at let's take a. a objective look at what you're doing to yourself and it goes from anything from you know how much time you spend thinking about where you made a mistake uh to kind of the thoughts you have about you not being competent or having the skills or being a fraud to you know the language you use as you talk about things you do you know so it's like oh that was so stupid i did such a dumb thing or oh, i'm such an idiot and it's like well what message are you sending to your brain you're telling your brain i'm an idiot and i'm a dumbass you know and i i Again, how can you feel good if you're talking to yourself this way? Yeah. Yes. Do you focus a bit on on self-talk then? Like, hey, let's use some different language. Let's try and reframe what it is that you're. And I I kind of feel like that's a bit cognitive behavioral therapy type stuff. It's like, you know, let's let's use some self-talk and let's just change the language around. And um, and that's definitely like, again, affirmations is something that I use quite a lot, you know, especially when it comes to um, comes to relationships and, and se- relationship with self, really, um, when it comes to self-pleasure. Uh, is is you know making things okay you know it's okay to to um to explore your body it's okay to kind of you know e- experiment with with you know with toys for example things that kind of bring up a lot of that anxiety of like oh you know that's not what that's not what men do that's not what guys should be doing sexually you know and that's you know there's this um this idea that it's it's not normal or it's not or it's not masculine or it's not manly or whatever it might be um so having that positive affirmation that positive self-talk to be like fuck it's okay like i'm i'm allowed to do this and there's no one's gonna you know i'm still i think it comes down to like um something that i was kind of thinking as you were sharing before it's like this idea of like self-worth right it's like i'm i'm still worthy even if i do this i'm i'm worthy no matter what kind of happens right and i I think that self-worth piece of the puzzle you know if i reflect on my own and i shared this with um uh, adam roller in a podcast a few weeks ago was um like my kind of karmic fear, as he refers to, is is not not feeling good enough or not being good enough, you know, and and being called out for for not being uh, a good enough lover or for not being a good enough academic or for not being good enough in whatever it is that I'm presenting. And I and I, you know, when I think back to it, I'm like, well, that's a self worth issue, and and I think that's you know one of the core things. That maybe you can you can share on this, but um, for me, I feel like that's a core. Um, imposter syndrome kind of um causation i think is that like you know i'm not worthy i'm not good enough or i'm not i'm just not enough and is that kind of uh, something that definitely contributes mm-hmm, absolutely and i think that that's that's why i'm so big on language um you know and kind of like linguistics and stuff and so like you know reading a lot of what deborah tannen puts out uh she's a linguist out of georgetown university uh, has a bunch of books on like you know uh, many women in relationship um, but like kind of making people aware of the language they use. And so 
even like the, the guy who founded the style of therapy, I do rational motive behavior therapy, uh, Albert Ellis, and, and kind of saying like, well, you know, there's, there's these demands you're putting on. Look at the language. Like I should be doing this. Uh, you know, I don't have, I can't. And it's like, well, that stuff is very limiting. And if you're saying, you know, you're putting this high level of standard, I should, or I have to, it says then that if you don't do whatever comes after that, then somehow you're a failure, right? And so what you're doing is you're making the, the opportunity for success to be very small, but the opportunity for failure to be massive. And, you know, we've got to kind of change that or at least balance it out again. I mean, I'm not saying you've got to abandon, you know, your, your, your success or goals or setting, you know, setting standards for yourself. I'm just saying temper them, you know, make them a little bit reduced so that they, you know, are in line with reality. You know, I don't know that you have to go out and, you know, score all the points or be the be the best player on the team or that you have to score any points to be impactful in the game. You know, there are other ways to be able to do so. But if you're like, oh, well, I had a terrible game because I, I scored 16 points. And it's like, well, I mean, I don't know if that's true. Like what you're saying, 16. So anybody who scores 16 points, it's a terrible game. Right. Like you've got to convince me of that. Again, I, I love philosophy and stuff. So like explain your thought process to me. Because there's a person who on the bench, that's going to be their best game ever if they score 16. So if 16 points is just a terrible game, then, you know, that's not it. And it's like, you know, we're talking about impact. There are a lot of ways to impact. And so, you know, not holding that against you, but people do that. They put these demands on themselves uh, to kind of, you know, adhere to this arbitrary standard that they've created. And it's like, I don't, I don't know that it's appropriate for who you are, just for human beings in general. Mm, yeah, dude. I see that in sex all the time with like, this many orgasms you've got to have for it to be successful sex or you know um uh, we've got to do this many positions or whatever it is right these these relatively arbitrary um performative things right um that you measure your masculinity against or you measure your successful sexual encounter against um and and a lot of what i try and do with people especially men is reframe that to well, did you enjoy it? Was it pleasurable? Did your partner enjoy it? Did they find it pleasurable? You know, that comes down to communication again. And I often, um, a, a skill that I try and help men develop is debriefing, right? With their partner after a sexual encounter, rather than the Hollywood example of just having a cigarette rolling over and going to sleep, you know, have a, have a conversation with your partner. What did you like? What did you enjoy? You know, did, and also what didn't you enjoy as, you know, and, and can we learn together and can we, can we um, facilitate more pleasure in, in each other the next time that we have sex? And can we get the ball rolling for that rather than being like, oh, fuck, she didn't orgasm or I didn't orgasm or, you know, she didn't orgasm in this many times. So it's a, it's a failed, um, it's a failed experience or, or whatever, whatever the, the, that kind of um, self-talk is. Yeah. Like that's the only metric of whether it was a quality experience or a good experience. Uh, yeah, I have a, uh, a friend who's a therapist. We were in uh, school together uh, in our master's program, our grad program. Uh, and she's a, a sex therapist, and she talks about like taking Hollywood out of the bedroom, right? That like that's an unrealistic standard for people to try to try to live to adhere to, which is you know kind of I think appropriate for life. Of, like you know, movie star lifestyle is not the everyday person's lifestyle. So like not trying to emulate or copy that or or you know bring that to fruition in your own life. And it's so, like you said, like you know that's the only metric of success. And what we've said is that unless this happens, then everything else is subpar or terrible. And I'm saying I don't know most things that like, you know, if I don't have a Coca-Cola, then, you know, all of the drinks suck. And it's like, well, no, nah, I think they're like orange juice is pretty good. Like, you know, there's other things you can have 
that you know that'll be okay. I mean, you could drink water; that would be fine. Like, uh, but I think you know that people get caught up in this this belief, like you said, that core value, and, and it has to be this or else it's it's trash. And that that black or white or dichotomous thinking isn't really helpful in most areas of life. Yeah, yeah, I, I, it's absolutes again, isn't it? You know, and and I love the idea of and I ref, you know resonate with what you were saying before this the idea of nuance and the idea of kind of diverse experiences i think is really really important um and i just um want to add on here because something that i i wanted to to touch on with you was um you know again from my own um personal journey at the moment which is transitioning into parenthood um you know we're on a on a journey at the moment but one of the things that's popped up for me is like oh fuck i'm you know potentially going to be a dad like that's um firstly scary as fuck but also i'm like you know i'm 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 not dad material i'm not a i'm i'm you know and then so i'm i you know when i reflect on my own personal experience having that imposter syndrome when it comes to you know stepping into the role of a father and i'm and i haven't spoken to too many guys about this because it's still very fresh for me but i imagine that a lot of men go through something similar when it comes to transitioning into a new role in their life yeah, and I think that's it, right? Like, and that—that's the difference with imposter syndrome is that when you—it's—it's it's, some of it's appropriate and natural that when we're starting something new, we operate in a place of like having a little bit of self-doubt. It's like I've not done this before; I don't know that I'm going to be successful. That—that's appropriate. I mean, you know, I'm not saying that you can determine that you're 100% going to be terrible or that you know 100% you're going to be fantastic. I'm saying you can be neutral and say, "Hey, I don't know how it's going to happen." Uh, but to oftentimes people go the opposite direction and say, I don't think I have what it takes to do this. And it's like, well, you haven't engaged in the the the, the process or in the event or the, the situation yet. How are you already predicting how well you're going to perform instead of it? It's not here yet. Right. And also, you know, kind of taking into to stock, it's like, well, how do you do in other areas of your life when you're experiencing or entering into something new? You know, you started a new job before you've gone to a new school. You've met a new person. How do those interactions or those instances usually transpire? It's like, oh, well, you know, sure, it's a learning curve, but, you know, I'm still in that job and I'm doing okay. So then why wouldn't you also do well in this other new space of being dad or husband or whatever it is? Uh, why wouldn't you also be okay there? Like, I don't know that you're going to be, you know, maybe you're not going to be the best dad ever to live, but that doesn't mean you're also going to be shitty at it. Mm. Yeah, beautiful, man. And and that, like, um, to reflect on like where imposter syndrome can kind of go, you know, we, we spoke about like kind of hyper performing, you know, and, and kind of going above and beyond. Uh, but then you've just touched on like kind of the opposite direction that can go, which is just like not even attempting to try. Right. And, and um, because all of the, all the pressure and the weight is kind of too much. I'm like, you know, if I, cause that's safe, right. If I just never try, then I could never be told that I'm bad. Um, and, and therefore like I, I, I can protect my, maybe it's protecting the ego, but it's protecting that kind of core value of like, well, I'm, you know, if no one tells me that I'm bad, then by default, I'm, I'm worthy and I'm good. Um, and so I'm, I'm wondering is, can we touch on that for the last couple of minutes is, is when that becomes a thing of, of, of hindering people kind of transitioning into, into new experiences. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's that, that idea of playing it safe, right? Like I've survived here. And so when you're thinking about imposter syndrome, you've got to think that people are on a daily basis trying to figure out how they are going to, I guess, defraud everyone around them, how they're going to make sure that they aren't found out 
to not have or possess the skills in the environments that they kind of inhabit on a daily basis. And so if you think about like, if you do well in something, you usually get elevated, right? You get more notoriety. There's more eyes on you. That creates a lot of anxiety for somebody with imposter syndrome because now it's more opportunity to be found out. And like, I'm already managing on a daily basis, you know, the interactions with my boss, with coworkers, with spouse, with, you know, friends, with anybody, uh, you know, family, whoever. And now you're saying, I've got to add, you know, 10 times that number of people. That, that's scary as shit. Like, I don't want to do that. Uh, and so then people shy away from success, right? They don't want to take on new opportunities or promotions, right? Because now it's, I've got to have more pressure because I'm going to have more people looking at me and I'm higher and I don't have this ability. So it's like now I am, you know, CFO of the company and I believe that I don't really know math that well. And so, you know, people are going to find I'm going to be found out and people are going to be upset and I'm going to be embarrassed and all this stuff, even though it's not true that like the people who put you in this position, uh, I think, I think they know kind of, you know, what it takes to be able to perform well and that they've determined you've had it or at a, at a bare minimum, I, I try to tell people that at least give yourself credit for being really good at fooling people then that like you've done it this long. Why wouldn't you continue to be able to do it? And nobody will be the wiser. Mm. Yeah. There's a, so there's an element of self-sabotage as well then you, of, of people that like, um, you know, I'm not going to, um, go for that promotion. I'm not going to put in that extra bit of effort to maybe take the risk to, to, to get noticed, you know, so they're, they're, they're shooting themselves in the foot, I suppose. And, um, I, I, if, again, if I just use my own personal experience here, my, um, the way that I relate that to kind of like sexuality, I suppose, and sexual experiences, especially when I was in college was, you know, there was this assumption that I was, you know, kind of a ladies man. Um, and so, um, and so when I was, when there was a potential for a sexual experience, I would, you know, to, to kind of play it safe, make sure I got really fucking drunk. So that that way, you know, if things went wrong, it wasn't my fault, right? It was the booze's fault, you know? And, um, and so it was, it was a way to, to maintain, you know, defraud you know, as you, as you use that word, um, the, the, the kind of people in my life, you know, the, I could then go to, I could say to the, the woman that I was with, I was like, oh, you know, it's just, I've just had too much to drink. I, I've just, I, most of the time I would just end up passing out um, and um, I wouldn't have to have the conversation. Uh, and then the, uh, and then I could just tell my mates, I, I was like, yeah, I just, I just got really wasted. And, you know, and, and so you know, again, you're kind of maintaining this, this, um, this image, I suppose. And, and um, yeah, protecting your masculinity, your saving face. Yeah. To- yeah. Saving face. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Keeping that mask on, I suppose. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Exactly. Cause I mean, now again, I can, I can attribute it to something that wasn't me and I can, hold on to the, the tiny thread of, of, you know, whatever I have developed or, or come to believe about myself. Mm, interesting, man. Uh, there's one other thing that kind of popped up as I was um, listening to you talk was, um, and maybe you've had some experience doing this, but uh, a lot of the way you were describing um, imposter syndrome and, and um, that negative belief of like, I'm, you know, a lot of people see me one way, but I don't see myself the same way. Um, is uh, like body image and, and even dysphoria. And I was wondering, do you have any uh, experience working with people that have dysphoria? Uh, so it's, it's funny you kind of bring that up because before I kind of made the transition into imposter syndrome, I was going to go into, you know, working with folks that, you know, had body dysmorphia, uh, dysmorphic disorder. 
Uh, and so, you know, I kind of didn't go that way, but I've been doing a ton of research, but it is like the same thing. It's, it's no different from, you know, the person that, you know, you tell them to draw a silhouette or an outline of what they look like. And then you do like the actual tracing of what their body looks like and, you know, trying to get them to kind of say, well, what's, what's the difference here? What's going on? Uh, but it is kind of the same thing. So like, not specifically as it relates to kind of body dysphoria, but, uh, dysmorphic disorder, but definitely like in their perception itself, I would say it is a form of dysphoria, right? Like they do not have an accurate perception of who they are or how they're being seen in the world. Mm. Yeah. So powerful, man, to be able to like, effectively, it's like changing your identity, right? You're you're re- reaffirming kind of who you are and and you're changing the language that you use to talk to yourself which is such a powerful powerful tool and i think a lot of like i think a lot of people talk about it right they're like oh you need to you know use affirmations and use mantras and and a kind of like quite surface level when it comes to actually doing that work of like how you identify with yourself and how you how you um relate to your self-worth i suppose so um yeah i'm i'm, I'm really happy and excited to know that there's people like yourself that are doing that deeper work to be like hey here's actually how we can go and really change at a deeper level those those um relationships that you have to self because you know i think there's uh, a lot of people kind of at kind of talking about it at a surface level but maybe not so many people doing it at a, at a, at a deeper space so um for sure like how do you give yourself affirmations if you don't think you do anything well you know how yeah, do you yeah kind of falling on on deaf yeah. ears right yeah, exactly. Exactly. Like you've got to have some evidence. You've got to have something objective and tangible that you can say about yourself, you know? So affirmation, I am a person who scored 40 points. You know, I am this, like you've got to be able to attach it to something real because again, that is for you does not allow you to, to just make assumptions about yourself and say that they're true of me. It, would that be your, um, like if you could give one generalized piece of advice to people that maybe are feeling um, that imposter syndrome that we've kind of been talking about and you've described today, uh, would that be your, your piece of advice or is there be something that you would say, Hey, here's what you can start doing today? So I guess the thing I would let's say do that has the most impact is for you to be aware of your language. Uh, I think language is where things start and, you know, you're thinking, uh, so just, just start to pay attention of how you talk to yourself. And like, if you are using words that are, you know, absolutes or demands like should have to must you know that masturbatory behavior that albert ellis called it um you know uh, i better need uh so kind of you know how are you using those words and the message it's sending to your brain about your ability to kind of fulfill that and accomplish that uh and so kind of changing some of that stuff was it would be nice to i would like to uh just tempering it a bit so if you could just do that i think a lot of people would have some different experiences in life in general yeah amazing man yeah stop shooting yourself is something that i like yeah, to, yeah, like to share with people yes yeah. so, um well thank you so much brother for having a, a yeah really beautiful powerful chat with me today and um yeah i'm looking forward to to yeah following your work and and even yeah sending people your way to do some of that deeper identity stuff so yeah i appreciate sure. it appreciate it man thanks for having me on